Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Robert Weinstein. My OkCupid profile was terrible. In the section, tell me about yourself, I had said, we should like each other. <laughs> that and more, but before that, are you following us on all the socials, uh, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram? We are at Risk Show. And on Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. There is so much important information about upcoming live streams, about opportunities to pitch us, about people discussing stories online that you can find out about if you follow us on our socials. So be sure to add us. We are at Risk Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I am at the Kevin Allison on Twitter and Instagram. And speaking of our live streams, we have another one coming up on Friday, November 6th at 10 p.m. Eastern. I will be there. Who knows where we will be? I am recording this on November 1st. The election day is November 3rd, of course, and by November 6th, we will either be quite relieved or losing our minds, I guess, at 10 p.m. Eastern for the Risk live stream. It's going to be a wonderful chance to get together as a community like it always is. Mark Redmond, Teresa Okokin, Josiah Simpson and DJ Crystal Clear will all be there. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Brandy Disterheft behind me now. And this is being recorded on Sunday, November 1st, 2020, just two days before Election Day 2020. And um, I don't know what to say. I mean, I am, it's been a rough weekend for various reasons. I just feel very much like, you know, a lot of us have put a ton of effort into getting out the vote and, you know, so, so, so very much is in the balance right now. Um, It's going to be a really, really wild week and uh right now while i'm recording this on sunday i feel like it's kind of a weird limbo period it's kind of a period of just getting just staying anxious basically you know i always recommend things like exercise meditation journaling reminding yourself what you're grateful for making plans to connect with friends all of those sorts of things to like keep yourself sane, do your therapy, all that kind of thing. But, um, you know, (laughs) there are periods where it's just like all the work you could have done might not prepare you for how, how crazy things are capable of getting. So let's all just hang on to our butts and, you know, Remember that we are all here for one another. I think that's one of the big, big lessons of this era is that the crucial importance of community. I think that we have learned that obviously electoral politics is never going to like do all that we want it to do. And so we can obsess over that and we can do things about it, of course, but even more direct is the extent to which we can make a difference in one another's lives. That's one of the reasons that these risk live streams have been so meaningful to us because on the one hand, yes, we are of course creating great new content and is very entertaining and all that sort of thing, but even more Palpable. The thing that people talk about, the thing that I talk about after attending one of those live streams is the way that it helps me to feel like, oh my gosh, my people are out there. We are, you know, we're kind of going through these things together, you know, and the loveliness of the way that people discuss stories on the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook or over at the uh, Risk Podcast subreddit. We have another live stream at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on the 6th, on Friday, the 6th of November. And (laughs) we've got a phenomenal cast for it. Um, But I'm really expecting that it's going to be fascinating because by the 6th of November, we might know who won the election, but we don't know. We, it could be that we will all be in a place of relief or a place of 
tremendous anxiety, but whatever it is, we will be there for one another at the live stream on Friday the 6th at 10 p.m. Eastern. You can always get your tickets at wristshow.com slash tour. We're calling this week's episode Restoration. That is kind of a hopeful word there that I was, you know, I'm trying to like put into the ether that restoration is what we would like to do, rebuilding, and in many areas, hopefully reinventing our country and our lives. There's a lot of accidents with babies or messiness with new beginnings or youthful mistakes that are all being repaired and restored from in this episode. It's a wonderful episode. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful Matthew Dix, who we can always count on to tell a fabulous story on the show. Before that, we're going to hear from Lemore Cohen. She's back. And before all that, we're going to hear a story that Robert Weinstein shared on the show at Caveat when Risk was still doing live shows in front of audiences in rooms. So before further ado, here is Robert Weinstein with a story we call Anywhere Emily Is. So about three and a half years ago, I'm walking down the street in downtown Brooklyn, and I'm on my way to the movie theater. And I don't remember which movie I was going to see, because the movie did not matter one bit. What I was really interested in was the very large tub of popcorn. It was my day off, and I had a ritual, and that ritual was I would go to the movies, I would get this big tub of popcorn, I would slather it with butter, I would sit down, I would eat it all. Before the movie started, I would get a tremendous stomach ache and watch the movie in pain, and then I would go home and sit on my couch, and I would text with my wife, Emily, and complain about how much pain I was in, and then I told her I would never do this again, and Emily always humored the lie because normally Emily was awesome. So I'm about to go into the movie theater and my phone rings and I look down and it's Emily and I brace myself to be annoyed. Now Emily is 25 weeks pregnant and up to this point every time she called me I was annoyed. Now I know it's not nice to be annoyed with your 25 week pregnant wife so I'm going to provide you some context for my particular brand of awfulness. So I loved Emily more than anything. Emily and I met online, which was kind of a feat in itself because my OkCupid profile was terrible. It consisted of one photo that was two years old and blurry. And in the section, tell me about yourself, I had said, we should like each other. (laughs) I was very defensive. The reason that Emily reached out to me, though, was because I said that my favorite TV show was a, uh, a comedy from the 70s called Soap. Yes. <laughs> and it was the easiest relationship I had ever been in. 
Emily and I made out on our first date. We spent hours together putting together Lego sets like cars and Ghostbuster mobiles and the Death Star. We gave personalities to a stuffed penguin and an elephant bookmark and spent hours in conversation between the two. And Emily laughed when I proposed to her because the reason I proposed to her, I did it a little bit earlier than I wanted to because I was terrified that she was going to be hit by a bus before I got the chance to tell her that I wanted to marry her. <laughs> and she said yes, even though the words, will you marry me, never escaped my mouth. <laughs> And when it came to kids, I never felt one way or the other about kids. I always wanted to find the person that I was going to be with, and then I figured whatever happened after that we could deal with. And since Emily and I were in our 40s, I figured there was a good possibility that we'd have problems having kids. So I felt that we were on solid ground. But Emily and I conceived, and well, Emily, well, we conceived together, <laughs> which was fun, because conceiving can be very fun. And at week four, Emily became nauseous. And for the next 21 weeks, she remained nauseous, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. She had trouble eating, and she had trouble sleeping. She couldn't stand the smell of anything. And she constantly complained. And I did not know how to deal with the complaining. And I felt bad because I wanted to be supportive, but I also wanted to be a partner. And at this point, I was no longer a partner. I was an errand boy and a sounding board. And I didn't feel like we were on equal footing anymore. And I didn't understand how our relationship was supposed to proceed. So when I was going to the movies, I needed the tub of popcorn. I needed the time to myself so that I could recalibrate my sense of empathy and just remember that I loved Emily. So when Emily called, I picked up, and she complained, and I became annoyed. She said she had this gas bubble underneath her abdomen, and she was in pain, and she was going to go home from work. And she said that she knew it was my day off, but could I please, please get her a popsicle and bring it to her at home? And I did not want to. I wanted to tell her that there was a bodega on the corner of the subway and she should pick it up herself, but I didn't tell her that because I remembered that I loved her. So I brought her the popsicle and gave it to her, and of course it didn't help because popsicles are not medicine. <laughs> and I sat down on the couch and I was about to make myself some popcorn and eat and, and, and watch a movie when Emily came in and said, I am in so much pain, I'm going to the hospital. I know it's your day off, but you don't have to go. And I did not want to. But I still had a couple drops of love left and empathy left, so I went. Now the good news is that when you go to the hospital and your wife announces that she's pregnant, you get a room right away. Which was great because I was like, okay, they're going to find the gas bubble and then we're going to get to go home and have the day off that we were supposed to have. But then Tweedledee and Tweedledum walked in. Tweedledee and Tweedledum are two interns who were unhelpful in a variety of ways and they were unhelpful badly. They came in and they asked Emily a bunch of questions. They whispered to each other. They scribbled stuff on their clipboards and they didn't tell us anything. And they asked her the same set of questions three times. And by the third time, I was so upset. I wanted to scream at them, just find the damn bubble so that I can go home. But then Tweedledee and Tweedledum brought their supervisor in who had the wherewithal to look between Emily's legs, press on her abdomen, stand up and announce, your wife, is three centimeters dilated. She's going to have this baby today. 
So they rush us to the emergency room, and I am astonished by how many people are there. So I am holding one of Emily's hands. There's a nurse holding another of Emily's hands. There's one doctor each on each of Emily's legs. In between, facing Emily's vagina, is our three doctors who are sort of crouched like minor league baseball catchers. <laughs> Off to the side is another set of doctors with a machine I've never seen before. And then back behind the crouching doctors in three different rows are 12 or 13 different doctors because this is a teaching hospital and word got out that there was a micropremie being born, so they wanted to see it happen. So the contractions started, and I'm standing around, and I have no idea what to do. And everyone's telling Emily to push, and she pushes, and she pushes, and nothing happens. And I'm feeling more useless, and I'm annoyed because I want to go home, and, and I want to help Emily, and I don't know how to do it. But then the contractions come again, and I notice the nurse on Emily's other hand is saying, push and push, and I'm like, oh my god, I haven't had these classes yet. I don't know what to do, but so maybe I should do that. So I begin to tell her to push and push, and nothing happens. And this grows in intensity to where everyone's yelling at her to push and push, and even the bleacher bums behind the doctors are kind of scrunched, going, just push, just push, and nothing is happening and I don't know what to do. And during a lull in the action, the nurse holding Emily's other hand leans over and whispers to her, you know what? If you just relax your legs, it might help. And Emily did that. And this gray and purple thing shoots out from between Emily's legs. And she is one pound, 15 ounces, and 14 inches long. And that was Josie. So the doctor looks at her and says she's not breathing. And so he quickly has me cut the umbilical cord. And the doctors over to the right swoop in. They take Josie, they stuff a tube down her throat, they connect her to the machine, and they whisk her off. And everyone immediately disappears. Except for Emily and I, and the nurse who is holding Emily's hand, who is left behind to clean up the debris, the afterbirth, the placenta, so that it could be analyzed so we could figure out why Josie was born so early. Now about two hours later, Emily and I are in her room and we're laughing. It's nice, it's comfortable, we're having a lovely time. And Emily told me that when Josie came out, it was like her body changed back to what it was before she was born. And it was just this really lovely, I was so happy to be with her and it felt like, it felt like we were before the pregnancy. And this nurse came in to check up on her and Emily was doing fine. And then she turned to me and said, sir, visiting hours are over, you have to go home. And Emily looked at me like she was afraid and the seriousness of what happened kicked me in the throat. And I wanted to burst into tears. Now, Josie was in a room in the hospital, and she might die. And it occurred to me that if Josie did die, it was going to change us. It was going to change Emily, it was going to change me, and it was going to change our, our relationship. And I didn't know what would become of us. And it occurred to me that there was a chance that I would lose Emily. And for the first time all day, I was afraid. So I said to the nurse, look, 
Emily and I didn't know this was going to happen when we woke up this morning. And we're freaking out, and we want to be together. So if you could find it in your heart to let me stay the night, we would really appreciate it. And she did. So I got to hold Emily's hand and fall asleep next to her on this orange window seat that was next to the hospital bed. And I got to watch her fall asleep. And popcorn or no, I didn't want to be anywhere that Emily wasn't. Thank you. Robert Weinstein! Uh, oh, by the way, folks, I wanted to let everyone know that Robert wanted everyone to know that his daughter, Josie, is terrific. <laughs> yes, she, she's being babysat tonight. I've been pregnant seven times because I had three miscarriages before and in between births. Two of the miscarriages I managed to do at home without undergoing any surgical intervention. After giving birth to a dead miniature baby, I felt like I could do anything I ever wanted to. So I decided that with all the knowledge I gathered, I will try to help women in the same situation. I built a website with all the info and precautions needed, added my phone number just in case women had more questions or just wanted to talk. And since then, it's been almost 13 years, I've been getting a call every couple of months, some of them with heartbreaking stories, like a woman who told me that she's been trying to conceive for 17 years, and when she finally succeeded, the fetus died at 12 weeks. Or this other woman, she had a streak of four miscarriages. And when she called me, she said she knows she should be grateful because she already has three boys at home. And I said that the three boys at home, they have nothing to do with the baby she just lost. She should be able to grieve if that's what she feels. Because obviously she feels that there's another baby that needs to come to this world with her being the vessel. She has the right to feel upset that it's taking so long and with so much agony. 
When we ended that talk, we were both crying. And a few years later, she called me to say that she had two more babies now. She calls me the miracle maker, which I am not. I just let women talk while I listen. We were two and a half months into the corona and I got three phone calls from three different women on the same day. This never happened to me before. One of them was a 40-year-old woman who has six children at home. She did not plan or want this pregnancy, so I guess she was just lucky to lose it. The other two had terribly sad stories. They both lost pregnancies before at very advanced stages. They were having a really hard time parting from this pregnancy. When I hung up the last call, I was so sad I couldn't shake off the bad feelings. It was like this cloud was hanging above my head. I talked to my husband and told him that something is so wrong with this world. Why are all these women suddenly losing their babies? And my husband said, well, obviously it's because of the corona. And I panicked. I said, oh my God, you think corona causes miscarriages? This is so bad, it doesn't only kill old people, but tiny fetuses. And my husband looked at me and he said, oh, no, no, no. What I meant was that people are at home. They got nothing better to do, so they have sex. We're going to have another baby boom in nine months. It's just that you get to talk to all the women who lost their babies. I felt so relieved, like a ray of sunshine came through the dark cloud. The corona will eventually disappear. People will continue with their lives and we will see so many babies in a few months. Something to look forward to. I'm standing next to my wife, Alicia. We're looking down. We're staring, really. And then she says to me, I don't like the looks of that penis. And I'm just so happy that it's not my penis that we're talking about this time. (laughs) If we're being honest, I really don't know how my wife feels about my penis. She hasn't really spoken about it in glowing terms, but she's never really complained about it either. I think she's sort of somewhere in the middle. I think she's sort of ambivalent about my penis. It's sort of like not the best thing in the world, but not the worst. It's the thing that gets the job done, but isn't enough to write home about. And honestly, if that's the truth, that is fine. I will take ambivalence. But this penis that we're looking at right now, it is not fine. It is the penis of my son, Charlie, my nine-month-old son, Charlie, and there's something wrong with it. And I've known there's been something wrong with it for a long time. I've just been hoping that the problem would go away, as I hope so many of my problems do. I thought that maybe little boys had penises that looked like this, and then one day they didn't. It's not terrible, it's just sort of non-committal. It's sort of uncertain. There's like a little skin maybe on one side, and there's not enough skin on the other. There's an issue, and it's upsetting to me. Charlie is circumcised. We had him circumcised right after he was born. 
we had him circumcised because my wife is Jewish and her people believe that this is important. 2,000 years ago, somehow foreskin and faith intertwined and it became important to cut the penis in order to define your Jewish nature. Charlie's probably going to come home at 25 and tell us that we genitally mutilated him and he wouldn't be wrong to say it because that's really what we did. We also circumcised Charlie because his last name is Dix. And I know, having that last name, that he has a lifetime of dick jokes already ahead of him. (laughs) So to give him sort of a penis that doesn't look like the majority of American men's penises, it would be like putting a hat on a hat. It would just be too much for anyone to handle. And so we got him circumcised, and we did it in the right way. We did it at the hospital. I was worried that my wife was going to ask for a bris, which was not what I wanted. I've attended exactly one bris in my life. It was in Alicia's Nana's living room. I stood there holding a bagel while a man without a medical degree cut a child's penis. And every time I enter that living room to eat another bagel or to chat with Nana, I cannot help but think there was a day not that long ago in this unsanitary environment when a man without any medical school debt took a hunk off a penis while everyone else was eating potato salad. It just, it never felt right to me. Alicia didn't like it either, so we did it at the hospital. It was great, except it's not great because there's something wrong with Charlie's penis. And so I ask Alicia, what are we going to do? And she says, we'll ask the doctor for help. So we get in the car, we're driving to the hospital, and I'm thrilled because I need an expert to tell me what to do here because I don't have any courage I am not capable of making a decision like this. If you need a style of crib or a brand of diaper or you need a preschool picked out, I'm your man. But for actual problems, for real parental challenges, I can't handle any of it. So I like to put my problems in the hands of experts. We go to Connecticut Children's Medical Center. We see a doctor there. He looks at Charlie's penis. He turns. We say, so? He says, well... You could recircumcise or you could not. It's really up to you. And I'm so angry. Ambivalence. More ambivalence over a penis. I don't want ambivalence. I want certainty. So we're back in the car. We're heading home. I'm, I'm in a rage. And I say, what are we going to do? And Alicia says two of the best words she has ever said in her life. Second opinion. And so she takes Charlie to New York, to Presbyterian Hospital. She sees the expert there. He takes one look at Charlie's penis and he says, if this was my son, I would recircumcise immediately. And I say, great, we're going to do exactly what the expert says. And I'm really happy that I'm passing this decision off and it's not my own anymore. I know it doesn't sound like a big deal. It's a penis. And I know they are funny in so many ways, but it's also going to be surgery and With surgery comes anesthesia, and you almost always wake up from anesthesia. But sometimes you don't. And I couldn't bear the thought of being the father who put his kid under to get a slight penis correction, and then the kid never woke up. And so I unburden myself of that problem. I give it to the professionals, and I'm thrilled. And so the day comes for the surgery. We go to Presbyterian. We're standing in this little lobby area. And the nurse comes out and she explains what's going to happen. And they are really specific about how this process is going to work. 
they explained to me that there's going to be two nurses. One nurse is going to stay with one parent, and another nurse is going to stay with the other parent and Charlie. We're going to go up an elevator to the surgical ward, and when we get there, one parent and one nurse will stay at the elevator in the lobby, and the other parent and the other nurse and Charlie will go into the operating room. And that parent is allowed to stay in the operating room until Charlie falls asleep, and then that parent and that nurse come back out. I have no idea why there is this level of bullshit involved in getting my kid's penis fixed, but I don't care because I'm in the hands of professionals. But then they ask us, which parent's going to go into the operating room? Now, I know I cannot go in the operating room because I do not have the strength or the stamina to walk into an operating room, watch my son fall asleep, and then leave. That is not a job for me. I know that Alicia wants to go in the operating room. I know she has to. She is not like a mama bear. She is like a grizzly who will eat you alive if you touch her children in some way that she's not happy with. There's no way she's not going to be the parent. But I know this too. I also know that if I offer or even insist on being the parent to go in the operating room, Alicia will think that I have courage, that I'm a real parent And then I also know that when I finally relent and allow her to go, I will get credit for allowing her to be the parent that I didn't want to be to begin with. And so when the doctor says, who's going to go? I say, I'm going. And Alicia turns to me and says, oh, Matt, no, I need to be the one. And so then I try to imagine how long an actual parent, someone with fortitude and courage, would take to sort of ponder this situation and finally relent. I imagine how long that would be, and then I spend that much time pretending to ponder, and then I sigh and I say, fine, you can go. And so Alicia gets dressed up in this this PPE. She's like a giant walking condom, and she joins one of the nurses with Charlie, and I join my nurse, and we go into the elevator up to the surgical floor. And just like they said, I stay at the elevator door in the lobby with the nurse as Alicia and the nurse and Charlie go off into the operating room on the other side of the lobby. And as they're walking away, my nurse turns to me and says, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And I want to tell her, I'm not worried at all. This is not my call. Some expert somewhere in this building made this call for me. Like, I have no worry whatsoever. As far as I can tell, everyone else is more concerned about this situation than I am, except for maybe Charlie, but he has no idea what he's going into. And so I'm standing there as relaxed as can be. And so I wait and I watch. And after a few minutes, the door opens and Alicia and the nurse come out and Alicia's weeping. She's crying so hard, I think something's gone wrong. And I look to the nurse and the nurse on the other side of the lobby waves me off and says like, no, no, it's fine. She's just upset because she had to leave her son behind with people, strangers who are going to hopefully take care of him. And they're on the other side of the lobby still. The nurse is like filling out something on a clipboard. And I'm standing on my side of the lobby waiting while my wife is crying. And then my nurse leans in and says to me, this is the moment when husbands usually go and comfort their wives, taking them in their arms, perhaps. And I think, oh, (laughs) this is the moment. And so I sort of bring myself to and I walk across the lobby and I take Alicia in my arms. And the moment that I'm holding her, I realize what I have done. When I take her in my arms, she feels like a steel cable. Every muscle 
and her body is tight. She is as stressed out as I have ever seen her in my life. And compared to her, I'm a wet noodle. I am completely relaxed. It's the moment I realized that I passed off an important parental decision to a doctor. I didn't do the job that a father should do. I let someone else do it for me. But that's not what Alicia did. Alicia went and talked to a doctor. She took in the information, but ultimately she made the decision for our son. She's owning the decision and the burden is on her shoulders right now. And I did nothing. And as I'm holding her, I realize that this is kind of how our relationship works, at least when it comes to kids. If it's the mortgage, if it's hiring someone to mow the lawn, if it's sort of deciding what bill should be paid first, I am the person to take care of it because these decisions don't have real consequences. But when it comes to the kids, when when a lamp falls on Charlie's head and I'm not sure if we should go to the emergency room or use a Band-Aid, I am irrelevant in that conversation. I just step back and allow my wife to take over. When my daughter is being bullied at school, I let Alicia call the teacher and navigate that situation. I'm holding my wife and I'm realizing that I have not really been the father that she probably needs me to be. That I have been a person who passes off decisions to other people so that I can be happy and so that I can be relaxed. It's the moment I realize that I maybe need to be a better parent if that's possible, if that is somewhere in me. And as I hold her and I wait for the good news that the circumcision is fine, that his penis is beautiful, that it's still beautiful today, as we wait for that news, I start to think about the things that I can do better when we get home with our little boy. Thank you. Wow. Oh, my gosh.
This is Risk. This is the White Stripes behind me now. And we just heard from Matthew Dix. Now, Matthew is the author of the book Storyworthy, a great book about telling stories. You can find him at matthewdix.com. And before Matthew, we heard from Limor Cohen, Limor's second time on the podcast, and she was wonderful both times. And before Limor, just a little bit of something from Kate Bush, who is wonderful all times. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, don't forget how crucially important it is to us that you support us over at patreon.com slash risk. You can support us for any amount you choose. There are tons of bonus stories over there. Also, check-ins. I do some journal entries over there and interviews with some of the staff and storytellers ad-free versions of the show. So all of that is at patreon.com slash risk. And it's really what will mean whether or not we continue to flourish. You know, we, it's, we've been having quite a year, so we really do need your help. And if you're interested in doing a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Now, our final story on this week's episode comes to us from a brand newcomer. She was very nervous about sharing this story. You know, we always encourage that people share stories about mistakes they made or messes they got into. And, and those kinds of stories make people especially nervous about sharing. 
And when someone is especially young, and when someone is telling a story for the very first time on a storytelling show, it's quite a feat. So here is Yasmin Hasib. You can find her on Instagram at Yasmin the Artist. Uh, there's an E in her name in the Instagram, but an A in her name in the regular way of saying it. Okay, so here is Yasmin Hasib with a story we call out of my head. It is November of 2017. My name is Yasmin. I'm 24 years old. If it's after midnight, it is the fifth. Can I please go home? I hold my breath as the EMTs who have just finished strapping me into the gurney exchange a glance. Well, she got all the questions right. Yes, but we literally had to peel her off of the concrete. <laughs> and it's at this moment, as the ambulance doors are closing in front of me, when I realize I'm not getting out of this one. <laughs> I have been living in San Diego for almost a year. I moved here after my relationship with my daughter's father ended. Uh, the reason why I'm here without my daughter is because I'm going to this through this really rigorous management training program led by this really impressive entrepreneur. She's a black woman. Her name is Alexis Black. And I remember she was not, I was not expecting she was going to hire me. <laughs> um, when I walked into her office, my uh, resume was sort of full of the randomest sort of shit, you know, two years military service, couple retail jobs, a strip club, a spa, um, you know, and it wasn't impressive to anybody, but she barely glanced at the resume. She looked at me and she thought, hmm, you know what? You look hungry, kid. I'm going to hire you. And not just that, I'm going to mentor you. And so she brings me onto her team and she tells me, you know, I'm going to teach you the business. All right. And this is how I've ended up working 70 hours a week, going door to door through residential neighborhoods across San Diego, knocking on doors, selling cell phones. So today has been a very long, particularly hot day. And I was out in the field with someone else who's also in uh, the program with me, and we're gonna call him Sunshine. Sunshine is one of these really attractive, you know, light-skinned dudes, you know, that we all kind of fall in love with. We don't know why, just because they're light-skinned and they got tattoos. But, um, <laughs> so we're driving back home from the field. Both of us had had a really long day. He looks over at me and he says, Yasmin, you know, you should come out with us. And normally I would just go home, I would nurse a bottle of wine, I would eat something really cheap like fried potatoes and onions, and I would play with my roommate's cat and cry myself to sleep that night, you know? That's just where I was at in life. <laughs> but um, maybe it was because he was looking at me with his beautiful face, and when beautiful people are asking you things, you have to say yes. So I said, yes, sure, it'll be fun. <laughs> so, this is kind of how I ended up here. I have no sense of limits. And because I have no sense of limits, I end up sort of face down, you know, on the concrete, uh, get scraped up, shoved into an ambulance. And here I am thinking, oh my God, I can't afford this shit. <laughs> and so I keep trying to make eye contact with the EMTs as we get rolling down the highway. I feel us sort of, you know, start rolling down. And I keep trying to make eye contact, like, please listen to me. Someone please listen to me. But they're not 
listening to me. They're not making eye contact. They're not talking to me. They're talking to each other. They're talking about me, but they're not looking at me and they're not listening to me. I'm already very, very intoxicated. I kind of, I, I drank everything that was put in my face. It, it was beer, shots, whatever, you name it. Uh, I licked some various substances. I'd sniffed some things that were handed over to me. I was very, everything was kind of just colliding in a sort of insane chemical reaction inside of me. And I'm also scared and I'm in an enclosed space and there's these men all around me. And my survival instinct is to get very angry because when I'm angry, I get very strong. And so I decide I'm going to Hulk out. I'm going to break through all these constraints. I'm going to knock all these guys down. I'm going to barrel through the doors. I'm going to ninja roll across the concrete. I'm going to book it down to Ocean Beach where I live. I'm going to hide under my covers until I sober up. Okay, that's my plan. So I'm fighting and I somehow get one of my arms free. And um, before I can, you know, finish the rest of my plan, they all kind of jump on me and they're crushing me on the gurney and I just get angrier and angrier and as I can't move my mouth gets really creative and I start to just say the meanest most emasculating sort of things like fuck you guys your balls stink your girlfriends hate giving you head you've never made them come your mothers wish they'd aborted you all sorts of just really mean shit all right and I think I might have blacked out again at that moment because the next thing I remember is making eye contact with one of the EMTs and I remember him specifically because he's black, like me, all right? And he looks at me and he says, we called the cops. And I remember feeling so betrayed because he's black. And he's just telling me, so frankly, we called the cops. And I look at him and I say, but they'll kill me. And he says, well, you should have been nicer to us. Which is fucked up, but you know. Um, <laughs> so this is how I find myself dragged from the ambulance, slammed against a police car, and a woman is handcuffing me saying, don't you fucking fight me, because I will hurt you. And at this point, I'm sobbing, and she just ducks me into the police car, and I'm sitting there feeling low and pathetic, you know, with my hands behind my back, and her partner comes over and he tells me, you're being arrested for aggravated assault. You kicked one of the guys in the chest. And I thought, well, he probably deserved it. And <laughs> um, so they take me uh, to jail. And, you know, booking takes a while because it's all paperwork and ever. So I'm just say, hanging out in the cop car for a bit. And uh, they take me in after they finish the paperwork. And they're taking my ring and my necklace. And they're about to take my phone, you know, after they've taken my mugshot. When they hand me my phone and they say, um, is there a number in here that you would like to take out so you can call someone to come and get you? And I remember thinking, okay, well, I can't call my parents uh, because my father's not in my life and my mother is an immigrant. And there's some things that you just can't say to your immigrant parents, you know, being, uh, hey, I'm in jail for aggravated assault because I beat up some EMTs because I was really, really drunk and on drugs downtown, not building rockets and becoming a doctor. I'm sorry. <laughs> So I couldn't call my mom. I couldn't call my siblings because I didn't want to get back to my mom. It didn't occur to me to call any of my friends because it was just such an embarrassing sort of situation. Uh, so Alice Black's name sort of, um, it appears in my contacts and I'm like, all right, sure, why not? I'll just, I'll take her name. So I take Alice's name and I go into holding and holding is so cold. I don't recommend jail, guys. It's fucking cold as shit. But there's the, a myriad of different girls. There's girls crying. There's girls sitting back looking tough. Uh, there's people, you know, sleeping in the, in the chairs. There's people at the phones. And I go to the phones because they tell me 
call a bail bondsman, call whoever, you know, to see if they can come get you before we take you into housing. And we're going to take you into housing if no one comes and gets you um, by morning time. And by now it's two in the morning. First thing I do is I call a bail bondsman and the bail bondsman informs me I only have to pay 10% of my bail. So that's only a hundred bucks. The thing is, I hadn't been making any money in the field. Alice doesn't pay me. I'm working on a 100% commission. This is why this job is so stressful. And I don't have any money. And uh, whenever I inform the bail bondsman of this, they say, well, um, you know, you're going to have to get a hold of someone who can give you the 100 bucks. And when I call Alice, uh, she doesn't answer. And of course she doesn't answer because it's 2 in the fucking morning and it's jail. (laughs) So I call her a few more times. She still doesn't answer. And so by this time, I've sobered up. It's cold. But I've kind of come to this place of acceptance, you know, like I'm in jail, it's cold, I'm alone, it's fine, all right, I can do jail, this is easy, (laughs) okay? Um, And so the sun rises, they feed us some ham and cheese sandwiches with these cartons of milk, and those of us, they take over to housing, and so, you know, they do the strip search, don't recommend it, it's not fun, oh my god, they give you the, the, the used underwear and the sweats. They gave me a mattress and a blanket, and uh, they take me into housing. And my cell is on the second floor. I go up. There's nobody in there. But as I'm walking in, I pass by this, you know, the toilet and uh, this mirror. It's, it's, I don't think it's glass. I think it's just like, you know, very sort of icy aluminum foil or whatever. And it's funny because I look and I catch my reflection and I just look so dead and pale and pathetic and sad looking. And it's funny because the last thing that I remember before waking up on the concrete is looking at myself in a bathroom mirror and you know, all the things that I just taken in my system, they're all just kind of like just colliding and I'm just sort of like got that fading lucidity, you know, and I look at myself and I just kind of laugh like, <laughs> ridiculous, what is life? But this time it's very different. It's like, look at me, I'm dead. <laughs> and I get on my bed, you know, I make my bed, I get up under the covers and I pull the covers over my head and I remember feeling so relieved because I realized at this moment that I would much rather be in jail than in a hospital room. And I go to sleep, and I had been so calm and so, you know, just like accepting since I'd sobered up, and I just go to sleep, and it's just the best, most wonderful sleep until um, I'm woken up a few hours earlier because someone is here to see me. And I think, you know, maybe it could be Alice, but when I go into the interview room, it's someone that I don't recognize. Um, It's this young man, he's got these beautiful dark eyes, these dark eyebrows and dark hair, and um, he has just so much kindness on his face, (laughs) which is just crazy, because I hadn't seen that in, I don't know, a long time. But, uh, um, so I sit down, and he picks up the phone, and I pick up the phone, and he says, so tell me, like, uh, what are you doing here? (laughs) I said, well, I've been arrested for aggravated assault. And um, he looks kind of shocked, like, what? (laughs) That doesn't add up. And I said, well, dude, I beat up some EMTs. I'm hardcore. What can I say? (laughs) Um, And he says, well, um, were we able to get a hold of anybody? And I said, well, um, you know, I called a field bail bondsman, but, you know, they weren't really able to help me. Um, I didn't really have anybody else to call. He's like, you didn't have anybody. And I said, no, I'm alone in the world. (laughs) And he said, well, do you know Alice Black? And my heart kind of just like skids to a halt. You know, just smashes against my chest. And, you know, I kind of just 
lean in, you know, and just look at him like, what? Alice Black? Because her familiar name is coming from his unfamiliar face. And um, he says, yes, she's the one who sent me here. After he says this, that cold relief that, you know, of being in jail, it just, it just it flies away. And it's like floodgates kind of just open. And I just start weeping. <laughs> and I look at him and I say, Alice sent you? <laughs> he said, yes, we're going to get you out of here. And I said, I, I thought I was alone. <laughs> and he said, yes, well, she wants you to call her before she gets you out, but you're going to go home tonight. I said, all right, cool. So I go back into housing and I call Alice. And she answers this time. And she says, hey, what happened? And I tell her, you know, as much as I remember. And I remember she says so uh, distinctly, she says, that, that's some bullshit. They didn't need to call the cops. You don't need to be in there. We're going to get you home. 24 hours from when I first walk into jail, I'm walking out. <laughs> and who comes to pick me up but sunshine? <laughs> and... He pulls up and I get into his truck and I remember he's looking at me so concerned and I don't say anything and he says, you okay? And I say, yeah, 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 I'm fine. And he says, you know, Yasmin, you're like our little bird. And I say, what? And he says, you're like our little bird, you know, we're just nursing you back to health so that you can fly again. <laughs> I remember just looking at him and just really wanting to hit him. <laughs> But I also really wanted to hug him, you know, because he drove all the way out to Santee to pick me up. And I say, dude, just take me home. <laughs> and so he does just that. He takes me home. And I don't finish Alice's management training program, okay? Um, I think I do it for about eight months. But I'm still really grateful to her, you know, for that experience, for this particular experience, because I realize the reason why I was so calm in accepting that I was in jail is because I built myself sort of prison in my head. And she would tell me this all the time, you know, Yasmin, you need to get out of your head. But I built myself this prison of shame and guilt because I felt so much shame and so much guilt being in San Diego away from my daughter. And it took me a while, you know, it didn't hit me, you know, all of a sudden, like after this experience, I didn't realize I didn't have a great epiphany or whatever, but I realized from this experience and from experiences that, um, you know, I came through because of this one, that it takes strength to end a relationship that needs to be ended. I thought I was weak because I couldn't make it work, but I was strong because I left that relationship because I didn't want my daughter to think it's normal to be miserable when you're an adult, to hate your life, to be suicidal. I didn't want her to see me that way. And I realized that it takes strength to change your normal, right? And so until my normal is one that I can fit into, <laughs> I keep changing it. And it takes strength to let yourself see, let yourself understand that you don't belong in prison. You don't belong locked up just because of some stupid mistake or because you couldn't, you know, get whatever help or what, you know what I mean? You don't deserve to be locked up. You know, you don't deserve to be in prison. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's my story. <laughs> Thank you. 
You told us we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men and women are created equal. And that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these life, liberty, and the, and the pursuit of happiness. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Janelle Monet behind me now, and we just heard from Yasmin Hasib. You can find her on Instagram at Yasmin the Artist. Don't forget the Risk live stream returns on November 6th. That is a Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern. That's 7 p.m. Pacific. And you can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Whether you're frazzled or euphoric or what, wherever you're at, wherever you are psychologically, come be with your family <laughs> at the Risk Livestream on November 6th. Guys, we've got so much going on over at thestorystudio.org. I'm so thrilled that corporations are starting to do workshops again. There was a while there where the you know, the uh, going from in-person stuff to Zoom stuff made a lot of uh, uh, staffs of businesses a little antsy about whether or not they wanted storytelling workshops. Well, the content is still incredible. The team building is still amazing. The, the way that people learn how to communicate more humanly, more emotionally, more compellingly about the projects they're working on or the brand they're trying to sell or the history of the company, whatever it is, we can help your team at thestorystudio.org. We've done workshops for Google and Pfizer and Citibank and American Express and so many more. So check us out at thestorystudio.org. And of course, there's plenty of opportunities for individuals as well. Classes on storytelling for business purposes, storytelling for performance, storytelling for personal growth, people who just want to work on storytelling in order to, you know, mine their memories and work on journaling and things like that. So lots of wonderful opportunities to be found at thestorystudio.org. 
and check out the the information, the notes on this episode in your podcast player. You'll see there's all sorts of links there to ways that you can get more involved with us, the way that you can get the Risk book at theriskbook.com. It is the perfect gift for the holidays. The way that you can have me make a little cameo video for you at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Or you can have an individualized training session with me, a consultation with me at kevinallison.com. And of course, everything you want to know about the podcast is at risk-show.com. If you go to the submissions page, that's the place to go. If you have a holiday, a winter holidays story about Christmas or Hanukkah or Thanksgiving or New Year's, go on over there to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Handcuffed in a bando. White boy in a sandals, police like a Rambo, blow it out, blow it out like a candle, Sambo, me and you was friends, but to them we the opposite, the same mistake, I'm in jail, you on top of shit, you living life while I'm walking around mopping shit, tech kid, backpack, no you a college kid, all I wanted was to break the rules like you, all I wanted was for them to love me too, but no matter where it was, I always stood out, black Waldo, dancing with the thick brows, we was both running naked at the luau, was both on shroom praying face down waist down remember when they told you i was too black for you and now my black popping like a bra strap on you i was kicked out said i'm too loud kicked out said i'm too proud but all i really ever felt was stressed out kind of like my afro when it's pressed out And I think, oh, this is the moment. 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 I don't know what to say. I mean, I am. I don't know what to say. I mean, I am. This is the moment. I don't know what to say. I mean, I am. I don't know what to say. I mean, I am. This is the moment. This is the moment. I just feel very much like. This is the moment. 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 This is the moment.